Welcome to the Fabulously Keto podcast aimed at improving health, vitality and quality of life. Eating real food in a ketogenic lifestyle. I'm Jackie Fletcher and I'm based in the UK. And I'm Louise Reynolds, an Aussie currently based in Bangkok, Thailand. Each week we will be bringing you guests who share their stories and discuss a range of topics which we hope will improve your health and well-being. Many of the guests, like us, came to Keto for Weight Loss and have stayed for their well-being, numerous health benefits and because they are living their best lives. We hope you will be inspired to incorporate these ideas into your own health journey so that you can feel better than you ever have before. Thinking about starting keto? Take a listen to episode number two, What is Keto and How to Start? Welcome to episode 53 of the Fabulously Keto podcast. And today we have not one, but two guests. So today, Jackie, we have Ali McDonald and Greg Potter. Now, Jackie and I are both part of the UK Keto WhatsApp group, of which we got to know Ali McDonald through the through the WhatsApp group. So when it came to the opportunity to invite him um, and talk about his experiences with low-carb keto and particularly his resilient nutrition products, it was really great that he said, but wait, let me invite Greg along as well, his partner in crime. Yeah, and I think actually before that, Fidel um, from episode eight had recommended that we interview Ali and Greg, so yeah, good to get them on. Yeah, and that's because Fidel is a mad, keen cyclist, as you know, listeners will remember um, talking about his fasted exercise. So you're absolutely right. So it was really good to sort of have the both of Ali and Greg on the show to talk about their products in terms of resilient nutrition. Yeah, and the you know everything they're doing in the endurance world really, they're making great headways. And certainly, I think for the listeners, they don't need to be put off by this episode to think, well, I'm not an endurance athlete because certainly, as you'll hear in this very long episode, we do get talking uh, on a number of different different tacks about their experiences, their research, their product development. And then we eventually, Greg talks more, takes a deep dive into to sleep. So it is obviously runs for how long, Jackie? An hour and a half. So bear with yep, us, to interview. Yeah, so bear with us. Um, we hope that you will enjoy that. Yeah. Jackie, why don't you tell us a bit more about Ali? Ali McDonald is co-founder and CEO of Resilient Nutrition. He's a former soldier, active endurance athlete and coach, and is fascinated by resilience and what enables some people to achieve what they previously thought was impossible. After spending 15 years working in the data, insights and technology space at Accenture, he combined his passion for human performance with his technology experience to found Optimal Human Performance, a company that works with scientists and coaches to help individuals and teams test the limits of their abilities, often in extreme environments. It was this experience and getting to work with his co-founder, Dr. Greg Potter, that led to the creation of Resilient Nutrition. So Louise, why don't you tell us about Greg? Well, that's Dr. Greg Potter, 
Thank you, Jackie, and leads the development of resilient nutrition products. He has a PhD in nutrition, circadian rhythms, sleep and metabolism, and an MSc and BSc in sports science. He is a health and performance consultant and is a regular keynote speaker at international health summits. Highlights of Greg's career include working with the US Naval Special Warfare, coaching a sprinter to four gold medals at the European Championships, being the sleep expert on a Channel 4 documentary, and having his research featured in dozens of international news outlets, including the BBC, Reuters, Time, and the Washington Post. So Ali is particularly fond of punishing exercise, the jungle, bagpipes, and biltong. While Greg is particularly fond of early starts, volcanoes, diving, and fish pie. That sounds very intriguing. So why don't we check out what Ali and Greg have to say. So today we have with us two guests. Welcome Ali and Greg to the Fabulously Keto podcast. It's fabulous to have you with us today. Thanks, Jackie. Fabulous to be here. Great to be here. So we always start with where in the world are you? So Greg, as you went first saying hello, you can say where in the world you are. I am in not very sunny Brighton this morning and Kem is used to, sorry, when I say Kem, I mean Ali, I call him Kem, short for Chemical Ali. He is used to seeing me in all sorts of different places because I've actually moved house 12 times in the last 15 months. <gasps> I'm in Brighton for another couple of months. Is that through choice? Yeah, partly through choice, partly through pandemic related issues. It's all good fun. Cool. And sorry, I said Greg went first before, but it was Ali that went first before. So Ali, where in the world are you? I am between Andover and Salisbury, so down in down in down in Hampshire, and it's actually quite sunny. Um, so I, I I can't complain. Very good. So shall we start with your journey? Maybe you could um, go back to where it all started and what led you to keto low carb. So who wants to go first? Well, I, I I'll start because I'm probably the uh, um, the the catalyst here so bit, bit bit of background um I, i've always been interested in in endurance type sports and um in doing that i've, I've always been interested in what, what how to fuel endurance type events um and i suppose over the last six or seven years i've had a growing interest in the relationship between nutrition and performance and that, that that's grown over time and i suppose i've been through a number of phases of uh, looking at what works best and one of those things i looked at uh, quite, quite a long time ago probably six seven years ago um was a low carb approach yeah so at a very personal level i i've struggled with you know, with finding a a food system that works for me um and a lot of that research led me to uh, actually led, led me to, to Greg and to um, and to, to another organisation that we ended up doing some work with uh, called Human OS. And it was really around, I suppose, I went through this journey of looking at paleo, a more a more whole food based approach. Um, and what I learned was that for different contexts, I needed to apply different nutritional strategies. 
and really that that's the essence of, of where we are you know where resilient nutrition has come from and, and where we've come from is is that exploration of what works best in different scenarios um and so yeah, the, the the keto low carb bit um i would say i tend to i i work well in in that space um and so i i've been in and out of ketosis god knows how many times um but i do find that on long races a low carb approach works particularly well for me um and that's really where i've i've uh, i've got the fascination with with this kind of style of eating yeah so when you say you were into endurance sports were there particular endurance sports that you used to do or still do uh, it's I, I well i, th I think it's it, i think some people think it, it it's a problem i think it is a problem my wife would probably say it's a problem because you know you start with doing something that's an hour and go okay that's uh okay that's that's cool I, you know, i've cracked that one then you get out to two hours then you knock out a marathon you go <laughs> that's dead easy um and then before you know it you know you're doing six seven eight nine hour races um so i think the longest race i've done was 37 and a half hours uh and i yeah i, I say racing you know, that, that that's taken many different forms you know i i often talk about running because that's the thing I, I i've done the most probably but then you know you get you get enticed by things like triathlon and you know the, the normal triathlon is just not good enough so you end up doing an ironman and then you do ultras that kind of like push the envelope on all of them um and then you get into the sort of multi-day race type thing so if, if i've got if i've got a sort of um a current endurance sport of choice it's it's probably multi-day racing just kind of uh go as far as you can it, and, it's, and it's an exploration it's it, i'm just intrigued about what it is that keeps keeps you going and it's it's all it, it's it's not just the food you know it's actually quite an interesting psychological space as well mm. so who was the one that that got you to change your way of thinking and change your way of eating I, I, i'm going to blame it on two people actually it, it's it's um uh greg and dan um uh because a lot of the work that went into some stuff we did in the past um really put a lot of flesh on the bones of things i'd been exploring around the relationship between nutrition and performance um and so you know chap called dan party um uh, who also runs a podcast um and then greg and i i met greg um at a biohacker event back in 2018 um where he was talking about the relationship between sleep um uh, between sleep and nutrition and performance and that really caught my eye as being quite a significant relationship and and it i kind of already knew this but what what it did was put a scientific basis behind the relationship between what we eat how we eat when we sleep how we sleep and and it really kind of clarified that it's all part of a system and when we look at one thing in isolation we're we're, we're having an effect on 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 other things um so yeah um greg greg and dan excellent <laughs> so greg what's your story i'll preface this by saying that i'm not actually on a ketogenic or a low carb diet i might be the first guest that you've had who isn't so i i apologize for that in advance i'm actually relatively macronutrient agnostic but my story is that i became interested in 
nutrition and exercise when I was 11. I hurt my back playing rugby. And that was also around the time that I started finding girls attractive and being insecure. I wanted to look better for the fairer sex. So I started going to the gym. I started learning about sports nutrition, ended up at Loughborough University, did an undergrad in sport and exercise science, then a master's in exercise physiology, then a PhD at the University of Leeds on the intersection between sleep, nutrition, and metabolism. And since the age of 19 or so, done work as a personal trainer, as a sports massage therapist, and have coached various athletes and non-athletes alike. And while my focus initially was very much on nutrition and exercise, over time I've come to appreciate the roles of all aspects of lifestyle and how we feel and how we function. And whereas my focus was once more or less exclusively on performance, I'm now at least as interested in health and mitigating chronic disease. And so in 2018, I met Ali and we immediately got on at the time I was working as content director at humanos.me and I was out speaking at that event. Ali and I stayed in touch afterwards, did work on various projects. And then in 2020, we decided to launch our company Resilient Nutrition in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. It seemed like a ideal time to start a company. <laughs> and nowadays we make nutrition products designed to help people sustainably feel and function better. My main role is formulating nutrition products. And I like to say that I'm more or less a full-time nerd, which I very much enjoy being. So um, what is HumanOS? HumanOS is a content platform that shares peer-reviewed information about how to change lifestyle so that people live better lives. So at humanos.me, you'll find things like video courses, explaining important health-related topics. You'll find various free blogs. There's a podcast named HumanOS Radio. And I first became involved in HumanOS in 2016, when Dan Pardy, who Ali mentioned earlier, reached out to me having read a paper that I published about nutrition and the circadian system that regulates our body's 24-hour rhythms. And we developed a friendship and then eventually Dan asked me to be involved in that company. And then after I met Ali, Ali became involved as well. So what led you to, to start Resilient Nutrition? I think it was in part frustration, having been exposed to a lot of misinformation, disinformation over the years about how people should eat and what they should supplement with to perform at their best. I think we wanted to right those wrongs. But at the same time, Ali and I had done work together. And in 2019, we were helping two guys get ready to row the Atlantic in the Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge, which is one of the ultimate tests of endurance. And to function well in that context, the guys needed nutritious, energy dense, easy to digest foods that would be stable without a fridge for several weeks at a time. And we began formulating what were initial prototypes of our first product, which is named Long Range Fuel. And that was in part based on Ali's experiences as an endurance athlete struggling with things such as 
fluctuating energy levels, digestive discomfort, and a general dissatisfaction with nutritional choices that were available. And to cut to the chase, the two rowers did really well. They broke the world record and we started using those prototypes in different contexts, other types of ultra endurance activities and endurance activities, but then also non-exercise activities too, such as just supporting cognitive function in the office. And given that we had positive results from using long range fuel in those different contexts, Ali decided to bring the product to the masses. So we then refined the formulation and the product became available last July. Wow. So I know that um, Ali was sort of saying that, you know, this initially started out, you know, supporting the athlete. But really what you've done now is to go, as you said, to to the general person that is obviously concerned with their health. So is the formulation different? Have you sort of changed anything from the long, long range fuel product to the perhaps those that are, you know, like me, who's still wearing their yoga sweat gear from this morning, who is a wannabe, um, you know, a wannabe sort of athlete, but um, part time you know, me and my 20 minutes, that's as long range as I go. Um, and of which 18 minutes is, is Savasana because that's my favorite pose in yoga. That's the corpse pose. Um, yeah. Is there any difference between the athletic formulation and as you said, the, the general population one? There isn't. And the reason is that we feel that the things that support health and athletes are much the same as the things that support health and the rest of us too. What I'll add is that long-range fuel comes in different versions, which are better suited to different times of day. And that means that it's a very versatile product. So just to briefly describe those different versions, there are energized products. These contain added caffeine and L-theanine. Caffeine people will be intimately familiar with, I'm sure. But... The products contain a dose of caffeine that has repeatedly been shown to enhance performance in different types of exercise, everything from upper body strength training exercise to endurance exercise to intermittent sprint exercise. And the L-theanine that's added is amino acid that's found in green tea. And L-theanine tends to help people better cope with stress and promote relaxation. And the dose that we use is, again, in accordance with studies, namely a dose of about 200 milligrams to 400 milligrams reliably leads to those results. And the combination of caffeine and L-theanine we describe as being a bit like Batman and Robin, they're better together. And they've been studied together and shown to have some additive effects on things like reducing mind wandering and the ability to stay on task during cognitive activity. So that combination makes this product very well suited to being consumed early in the day. So if you want to pick me up at the start of the day, then it's ideal. If you want to sustain performance during extended wakefulness, say during a night shift or during very long exercise, then smaller repeated doses can be very handy. Another product we have, we name Calm, and this contains KSM 66 ashwagandha. Some people will have heard of ashwagandha. It's a herb that's been used for millennia in Ayurveda. It's a so-called adaptogen, meaning that it helps people better cope with stress. It also has some interesting effects on exercise performance. So when people regularly consume it, it tends to boost VO2 max, 
which is one of the determinants of endurance exercise performance. But interestingly, there have been a couple of studies in recent years showing that regularly supplementing with ashwagandha during strength and power exercise also accelerates the rate at which people gain muscle mass and strength. And ashwagandha intake has a variety of positive metabolic effects too, and it can help people sleep better when they're struggling with their sleep. So this makes these products slightly better at promoting recovery. And we feel these products are ideal later in the day. And then both the energized products and the calm products are available with added L-leucine and whey protein isolate. And we call these versions rebuild. So that would be energize and rebuild and calm and rebuild respectively. And the high protein versions, the rebuild products are ideal when you're looking for something to function as a meal replacement, or you're looking to boost your protein intake for whatever reasons. People know that protein has a variety of positive effects on everything from appetite regulation to body composition and recovery from exercise. And some people won't have heard of L-leucine, but it's an amino acid. Amino acids are the individual building blocks of proteins. And it's the only amino acid that can independently trigger the synthesis of new proteins in muscle tissue. And it's the synthesis of those proteins that's the main determinant of whether you're building muscle or losing muscle. So in that way, it's a very special amino acid and we add a dose that's sufficient to maximally trigger that process. So in that way, those products are very well suited to helping people look better naked. <laughs> Creating those muscles. So Ali, the, the, the general thoughts around exercises and exercising and particularly um, endurance is that you have to carb load. How do we start to break that paradigm? I suppose I'll, I'll probably let Greg answer on, on, on that, that question um, in as much as, yeah, from, from my perspective, um, there's almost what you do before an event and then what you do during the event. And the critical thing is, is doing what, what, what works, works for you. Because one of the things we, we've recognised is that um, there's definitely... A significant amount of variation in what individuals what individual work 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 best on um and so you know I was, I was, when you when you were talking now i was just looking at looking at a pouch and I was looking at the one thing that greg mentioned was the calm products there was a specific version of the calm product called keto coconut and almond um which is it's got 646 kilocalories per 100 grams with 8.6 grams of, of carbohydrates um so that 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 works really well for me on on an endurance event. Um, I will also add you use the other ones. Um, I think on on the question of carb loading, you know, I'm going to let let Greg cover that because we we've written <laughs> we've written a book on the subject. Yeah. So with respect to the book. There's a free ebook that anybody can download at the website, resilientnutrition.com. Shameless plug, <laughs> named The Principles of Resilient Nutrition. And that introduces our general approach to helping people eat better. But at the site, there is also a guide that's written specifically for ultra runners and another guide that's written for ocean rowers. And if you're an endurance athlete and you're just interested in nutrition, I think you'll still find those very intriguing. 
with respect to carbohydrate loading and endurance performance or intermittent performance like ali said people respond very differently to different types of diets and interestingly if you look at studies of ketogenic diets then it seems like the inter-individual variation in people's responses might well be greater than other types of diets. So there are some people who respond really positively and some people who don't, and that's true of all diets and isn't a great surprise. With respect to carbohydrate loading specifically, I think the sports nutritionist's approach to fueling for different types of sporting activities has changed over time. So the original paradigm was very much a high carbohydrate, low carbohydrate, high carbohydrate, low fat paradigm. And what's happened over time is that as the scientific literature has evolved, people's perspective has become more nuanced. And nowadays, a lot of people speak about fueling for the work required, which is a concept that was arguably first popularized by researchers at Liverpool John Moores University a few years ago. And using this approach, the idea is that there are different types of training sessions that athletes will do for specific outcomes. So maybe in one session, the person is sustaining a relatively low intensity for a long period of time. And their goal in that session is to enhance their ability to use fat as a fuel source. To get the adaptation, it makes more sense to deplete muscle glycogen and do that session in the context of low carbohydrate availability. So consuming a low carbohydrate diet around that session would make a lot of sense. But then if somebody is doing an activity in which there are periods of intermittent higher intensities, then you want to have higher gears and carbohydrate provides the fuel source for those high gears as well as the ATP phosphocreatine system. And so having the metabolic flexibility to switch between using fat oxidation at higher rates during lower intensity exercise, given that your body's reserves of fat are practically unlimited when it comes to exercise makes a lot of sense, but then being able to switch those high gears and still burn carbohydrate effectively would be ideal. And so now nutritional periodization approaches to fueling for these events have risen in popularity and people are still trying to work out the best way to go about that. But I think it's worth bearing that concept of fueling for the work required in mind for most athletes. Now, with that said, there probably are instances where a ketogenic diet and not really having any high carbohydrate sessions might make sense for some people. So take the example of somebody with some sort of chronic health condition that's well managed by a ketogenic diet, or take somebody who's doing a very long duration self-supported event. If you think about rowing the Atlantic, for instance, then there's an emphasis placed on minimizing the mass of the boat. If your boat is lighter, then it's going to be easier for you to row. And because fat contains nine, nine calories per gram, whereas carbohydrate contains four calories per gram, you can squeeze more calories on board for a given weight if you consume a high fat diet. And while there hasn't been much research on high fat, low carb diets among rows, 
there was a case study published years ago finding that after a period of fat adaptation when two guys who were rowing the Atlantic mimicked the ocean rowing experience by doing a 24-hour row on an ergometer they did actually perform better on the fat adapted diet so I think for that type of event a low carb ketogenic diet might be really helpful for lots of people now with that said ketosis of course assumes that blood ketones are above a certain level and interesting if you look at ultra endurance activities in particular then even somebody who's on a high carbohydrate diet will probably end up in ketosis by the end of the event because they can't take carbohydrate on board at a rate that's high enough to sustain those high rates of carbohydrate oxidation so as they deplete their muscle glycogen stores they increasingly rely on fat for energy and they increasingly produce ketones which can be used as an alternative energy source so that's a long-winded answer but let's just say that that there are nuances to these things and there are certainly instances in which ketogenic diets can be very helpful and even for people who aren't on ketogenic diets periodically consuming a low carbohydrate diet on certain days of the week makes a lot of sense yeah because you need to be able to tap into those fat stores quite quickly i guess when you're doing your sport whatever that one is yeah and i suppose one of my first interests in this was some work that um um Finney and Volek did, um, and they, they wrote a book on this, and Greg could probably elaborate more on it, but what was interesting about it was how they managed to get the fat oxidation levels up in a number of endurance cyclists. And, and that, that was interesting, and that led me on to thinking more about this notion of metabolic flexibility, because ultimately it's, it's how do you get the fuel your body and, body and brain needs in, in that moment. And, and that's what's interesting about different events is, in a relatively sedentary um, kind of uh, modern lifestyle, um, yeah, that, that differs to, it's kind of like there's, there's a pattern that you can get into, that there's a healthy pattern in there. When you start to expose yourself to the challenges of some of these events, as Greg said, there's, if you go for the, you know, the, the, the relatively consistent long distance event where like the ocean rowing, where you, you're not having these big, generally not having these, not any planned spikes in, in work rate, then it fits really well. And that was a lot of the logic behind what we put together for the, for the two ocean rowers. Other, other situations where you've probably got maybe 10, 10 days, maybe, where some of those periods are quite intense, you may have a different strategy. Um, an example of that is a, is a chap that that we're working with called Chris Gaskin. He's started, I think yesterday morning on um, running the 214 peaks of the, of the Wainwrights. Um, and his challenge was, how do I do that completely self-supported? And he's gone off with a fuel system that's that's very low carb um, because you know, to, to Greg's point, he's got these, he's gonna, gonna sit at a specific work rate He's going to do that for 10 days. He's going to get rest in the evening. Um, and yeah, he's, he's pretty much going to run it to, to heart rate. Um, and so that's a good scenario where this kind of approach works really well. Mm. What possesses people to want to do 214 peaks of the rain, Wayne Wrights for 10 days? Are you lot crazy? Can't you think of anything a little bit more gentle? Like I'll take this one. Ali is crazy. 
<laughs> I think it's curiosity. It's curiosity about where, you know, I, I find it fascinating about where, where the mind goes. It's also very therapeutic, I, I think. Get, yeah, there, there was, um, was it Dan, Daniel Kahneman talked in his book about thinking fast, thinking slow about this, this kind of long, moderate, um, pace walks that you would go on that are a really great space to be thinking um and you know when you when you do that there's actually something about that when you know when i go for a really long run it, it, it really clears your mind and um it's, it's you end up in a quite creative space as well i just wish, wish I had an easy way to kind of keep notes of the crazy stuff that comes up on the crazy runs when you say creative space it's probably worth noting that those events are often characterized by prolonged sleep deprivation and within about three days of sleep deprivation most people are experiencing auditory hallucinations visual hallucinations so definitely conducive to creativity <laughs> says the man that has a phd so i can imagine that you being the athlete you were sort of obviously rewriting chapters of your phd while you were creatively endurancely sort of you know running around the neighborhood so well, I'm, I'm not an endurance athlete, actually. <laughs> and and I've, I've helped various endurance athletes in different sports. So at Resilient Nutrition, we've done work with ultra runners such as Chris, ocean rowers such as Max and Dave. We had a lot of athletes using our products in the most re- recent Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge. And then we also helped out Pip Hare in the most recent Vendee Globe which is a single-handed round-the-world sailing event. So I have that experience, but my athletic credentials are, are pretty modest at best. I, I played rugby at school, played cricket, played golf, but I think the longest run I've ever done was a half marathon around the local park just because I was bored one day. <laughs> <laughs> Not my idea of doing something when I'm bored. So, um, no, but... but- but he's living vicariously through all these other people. So I can see that there's a, there's a method in your madness. Behind every good athlete is a, is a better exercise physiologist. So yeah, I that's, I'm, that's I'm a not enough of a masochist for that stuff, I don't think. <laughs> One thing I'd say is that in terms of an approach, I think that one thing that's come out of all of this is two, two things. One is individual. How do you perform? It, yeah, and and kind of what what's right for you, um, in the scenario, and and the other one is is testing things out, is is trying different things. Because one one thing I've learned is there's, and, and maybe this is because our lives go through different phases, but also because we put ourselves through you know different cycles to uh, you know w- w- even within the year, and and so trying things out that work, a whole process of experimentation, particularly if you've got if you've got other you know health challenges is has, is really effective and i think the other thing i'd say is is talk getting good advice i mean we we started with that whole comment you know, the reason why we set up resilient nutrition was to make sure that we could create a filter between all the great research that's going on and turn it into something that's accessible to the you know to the average person because what one of the, one of the problems we see is that people find it hard to make decisions about what to do what's the best thing to do because they're either being smashed by you know mainstream media messages that can be quite polarized 
or you know, at the other end of the scale, you've got scientific research that's hard to interpret or inaccessible or isn't necessarily a place they're going to go to. And then you've got a whole bunch of brands out there that are, again, playing the marketing game to influence purchase behavior. I think you know, where, where we're coming from with all of this is you know, knowledge is king and you know, start, start with educating and then trial, test out what works for you and then settle into a pattern that, that's, that's ideal. So, of course, it's always the you have to do n equals one experiments and see what works for you, because we've said before in the conversation that we're all different and we all have different responses to different ways of eating, being, living, even sleeping. Says she who can't sleep at night sometimes. Um, We might have an answer for that. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, I've got a couple of questions. So. Um, Ali, what does your daily food consumption look like? Would you consider yourself low carb keto? Where do you, where are you on that range of primal to carnivore? Uh, I would say I'm probably pretty low carb, paleo ish. Yeah, I pretty much follow follow our our general principles. In as much as we've got a big push recently to focus on locally sourced product, um, just I can't, yeah, can't justify some of the uh, movements of food around the planet um, and some of those things. So I, I think I'm I'm probably part I'm probably quite on the carnivore scale. I'm quite high. But yeah, my recognition of that is that I, you know, I've tended to, I've increasingly looked at more sustainable sources of of, of um, animal protein. Um, uh, I would then say my carb intake's relatively low, um, and then my fat intake's probably rel- relatively high. Um, I do spend quite a bit of time fasting, so you know, I, I don't generally eat until later in the morning. Uh, so to, time, you know, to, to, to use terminology, time restricted eating, mm-hmm. you know, I tend to hang on a bit later. I tend to get out early in the morning. So a typical day would be get out around sunrise for at least a, a run or a walk or something, then get some significant work done with a clear head and a bunch of good ideas that came up on the run. Um, then I'll probably have a, le- a late breakfast um, and um, that's probably going to involve long range fuel um uh probably an energized long range fuel which will often will get me through to the afternoon so i mean you say yeah something one a, a single pouch um we do do jars so i yeah I tend to eat from a jar because it's more environmentally friendly um uh but yeah some of that that'll get me through to the mid-afternoon um i'll probably have a, a snack mid-afternoon try and get make sure i keep the kind of vegetable and fruit intake up um, and then end of the day, I'll probably have uh, veg and protein. So I tend to have more protein towards the end of the day. Um, and that, that, that's pretty much it. And then give myself a good few hours before I go to bed. So, yeah, I end up inadvertently fasting from sort of six at night till, till 10 in the morning. Um, sometimes it's different. Um, but that, that's a, t- typical, um, a typical day for me. What health benefits have you noticed since you changed your way of eating? Well, I've 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 also got a bit of a I've got a uh, esophageal problem, so actually volume is is an issue for me. 
So I, I really can't cope with yeah, high, large boluses of food. So um, that's been a help by kind of really thinking about what what I eat has helped because um, it kind of forced me to think through, okay, this is what I'm going to have and, um, and this is what works for me. Uh, but I think certainly energy, clarity of thinking, kind of just versatility, just... One thing I, I found is switching from a, you know, three large meals a day to something spread throughout the day has been a lot easier to cope with, particularly when thing physical stuff. Um, I used to really struggle with, um, yeah, after a, yeah, a big breakfast or a big lunch, going and doing physical work. Um, so yeah, that that's always a bit of an issue. Um, but yeah, and, and then just it, it changes day to day to day. But yeah, that, that's what a typical day feels like. Great. And Greg, what's you said you're not ketogenic or low carb. What what do you eat? I have dabbled with low carbohydrate diets before. Whether they were ketogenic or not, I have no idea because I've never measured ketones. But right now, I'll add that my health is relatively good. I'm very physically active. I do strength training four times a week. We've just regained access to the sauna and I probably use that four or five times a week too. And I'm, I'm young, I'm 31. So I don't have any chronic health conditions to deal with. My sleep's not fantastic from time to time, but that's largely just my inability to cope effectively with stress. So with all of that said, my diet is relatively mixed if i was gonna guess the macronutrient composition then it's probably something like 50 percent carbohydrate 30 percent fat and 20 percent protein i probably consume 20 grams of fiber per thousand calories probably eat three and a half or four thousand calories a day because i am very physically active in terms of diet composition i would describe it as modified paleo I know that paleo isn't so in vogue nowadays and people throw around lots of different terms. Paleo transitioned to ancestral. Now lots of people follow the whole 30 diet. In essence, they're all very similar. And I also don't think that a paleo diet is necessarily low carbohydrate or high carbohydrate. I think it can span the range of macronutrition. But I do consume rice find it easy to digest and i also feel better when i consume relatively high amounts of carbohydrate around exercise the type of exercise that i do at least which is generally short duration higher intensity and then with respect to nutrition timing given the nature of my phd i spent some time thinking about that and i think for a lot of people it makes sense to change the period in which they consume calories each day which some people would refer to as the eating window according to whether the person's trying to lose weight maintain weight or gain weight and what i mean by that is that going by the research done so far when people use a shorter caloric period or a shorter eating window so let's say maybe six to eight hours then they, they tend to inadvertently consume fewer calories without necessarily trying to. And so if somebody's trying to lose weight, then 
that makes sense. But if like me, you're trying to maintain or gain weight, you might want a slightly longer caloric period. So for me, I probably spread out my calorie intake over 12 hours or so each day. I normally wait at least half an hour before consuming anything containing calories in the morning. And we'll typically finish consuming calories by three and a half hours or so before bedtime because I find that if I eat too much too late it interferes with my sleep and again that's something that has been borne out by the research. Mm. I think that it's really interesting how we have I suppose and, and Greg will know about this translation so what we have is obviously you know you started out with manufacturing pitching your products you know, long-range fuel for these athletes but you've actually been able to translate that to um, you know to the general general public the general populace but really what we're also doing the function that you've got with the humanos.me sort of platform is also again it's a translation of as you said the research to make it accessible and I know that Ali in our earlier conversation we were talking about wanting to make sure that we had that approach built in not only to your products but also your platform and the way that you're communicating it because not all of us are athletes and really what we're struggling with is obviously, um, you know, the obesity ep epidemic. And I just wanted to pick up on that theme, um, Ali, about, um, I think you called it weaponization. So you've weaponized these products and you're weaponizing your messages well, as well. well yeah. So, yeah, I, I mean, both, both Greg and I have, are really keen on, on this, this notion that if, if you want to create change, you have to educate people and, and, and take them on a journey. And one of our, I think one of our biggest observations is that you've got to, to meet the consumer where, where they're at. And so we've, we've recently just launched a, a YouTube channel, Resilient Nutrition. Um, and we've also got a, quite a lot of video content, short form video content on the Instagram, on our Instagram. And the idea of that is that you know, we live in an, in a, in an Instagram-driven you know, world and a, a content-driven world. And yeah, outside of clearly, we would like people to buy our products. And Long Range Fuel is the first of a number of products that are designed to, I suppose, complement and support a healthy diet that we would, you know, that we've articulated in the principles. Um, like we think that it's going to, it is a combination of short form video content, slightly longer form blog content, and you know, potentially deeper form guides. Greg talked about a few of those that can help people go on that journey because you know you, we know you know, we all know from experience you you see something, you know, A, you've got to see it. You've got to you've got to have that sort of little peek at something or someone's got to told you about something. Oh, that could be of interest. That could be relevant to me. Um, and so we know that it takes time, but we know we need to get to people for them to start to think about it. Because ultimately what we care about is is really impacting those um, you know, lifestyle diseases, lifestyle ch uh, kind of challenges of, of the you know of the modern era. Um, and it, it, it's not just, a product that's going to solve that you know, it's not yet you know, we we don't make a, a wonder drug that you know suddenly makes everyone healthy yeah you know, what, what we've got is i think some really good quality research backed insights into 
some principles that anyone can apply. Yeah, that's our free gift to everyone. And that, that's probably where, where it all starts. And then when you start to dig into your kind of personal scenario, you can start to look at, okay, how might I apply them? And then build them into a, a system that work that works for me. Um, and that that's really you know, the, the 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 key to I think creating the effect that we'd like we'd like to have um, is reaching those people, which was great great to be on here. Um, yeah, it's it's, a, it's about reaching people and, and giving them some resources they they can start that journey with. Um, and then yeah, you then move into helping them do the formulation, and we, we're looking at we've got we've got some tools on the site already for long range fuel. So. <laughs> depending on the, the scale of your ambition you can uh, work out how much of uh, how much long-range fuel you might need for that um but uh, yeah expect to see some other stuff along the lines as we bring out other products but just really about helping people make more informed intelligent decisions about what they're doing about what they eat and and you know the other lifestyle factors like sleep and exercise great Any, anything else very nicely put Ken. <laughs> So uh, we know that we all know Fidel um, from episode eight and he's using your products. But yeah. what about somebody who doesn't do such endurance sport? How how might they use it? Well, I mean, certainly for, for your your, you know, your audience, I, I think there's all of our products are relatively low carb. I don't, I don't have the range in front of me, but I think you'd certainly be within your... Um, yeah, certainly within low low carb ranges and probably in keto ranges. Um, so I kind of alluded to this earlier. This long range fuel is a really good general. It, it's a hybrid. Kind of, it's really hard to put it in one box or the other. Yeah, essentially, it, it, it's a hybrid, versatile nutrition product that is low carb, um, keto friendly. Um, it for yeah, it can it can form part of a regular diet. So I I use it. I use it energize energize and rebuild generally in the morning to replace a coffee so yeah i i, I know i know people that use energy energize coffee and pecan um with some almond milk and they heat it up and they that yeah it's there it's, this is i've heard people say this is better than my bulletproof coffee you know that that's what they're using it for because they're getting the the kind of the, the the coffee benefit but as greg alluded to earlier it's the it's the combination of caffeine and L-theanine that are creating that effect. But it's also the fact that it's in a fat-based food matrix that changes the way the body metabolizes it, which rather than having the spike of a double espresso, you're getting a nice rise. So it's kind of, I, always, I like to think of it as it gets me in the zone. So I've finished my run. I'll have one of those. And I don't need to have all of it. One of the benefits of having a pouch or a jar is it's not like an energy gel where you smash the whole thing in one and you chuck away a bit of plastic. Yeah, I'll, I'll have that by my desk and I can have a have a mouthful, enjoy it. It's very satisfying. Um, you know, one of the one of the brilliant uh, benefits of um, leucine is it's very satiating. So if you're using the rebuild versions, you get the added benefit of some really high quality protein um, and it's more satiating. So for, for the average person, I, yeah. I would say this is a brilliant snack. It's really good if you're working, if you're a kind of a knowledge worker sitting at your desk, you could take you know, either of these, Energize or Calm. Um, we've got a straight rebuild version coming out very soon, um, which doesn't have the ergogens or the adaptogens in it. 
Um, that is a great meal replacement stroke snack product. Um, and you can use it throughout the day. Yeah, I've heard talk, people talk about dipping. Yeah, they'll, they'll, they'll dip into it. I'll have a mouthful, put it back in their bag of the rucksack, keep them going and go on to their next meeting or their job or whatever, and then have another dip. And before you know it, it's five or six in the, in the evening, and you're looking forward to your, your supper. So it's a really good sustainer, whether you're sitting at your desk, you're doing, you know, you're commuting, um, yeah, or you're out there, you know, going for a nice long walk. We've got plenty of people who use it for, uh, for you know, for their Saturday Sunday hikes as well, um, and a bunch of people using it on their bicycles. So definitely not an endurance product. Um, and I know we've come from that space, but I, th I think we've alluded to this: is what we've tried to do is take the lessons from that kind of ultra space where we're really pushing human limits and go, how is this relevant to the average person? And how can they apply some of those lessons in their day-to-day -day eating, living behaviours? So it sounds like it would be a good, like you say, meal replacement for somebody who is going out and about. They don't know what food's going to be available. They might be going to a meeting where there's all beige foods that they really don't want to eat. It sounds like that would be a good thing to carry in your bag or your yeah. pocket, whatever men do. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, I, I think a pouch of long-range fuel plus piece of fruit is a fantastic meal replacement. In that context, I typically go for a rebuild product, assuming that the person consumes dairy. And one thing that we might not have made explicit is that long-range fuel is based on nut butter. So all of the products contain almond butter, but the different flavors, so namely coffee and pecan, dark chocolate and hazelnut, cinnamon and cashew, keto coconut and almond, and gingerbread will contain other types of tree nuts too. So things like cashew butter, pecan butter, hazelnut butter. And when people regularly consume tree nuts, they tend to experience a variety of positive effects on their cardiometabolic health. So regular tree nut consumption consistently improves people's appetite regulation, their blood sugar control, it may reduce inflammation, and ultimately, if you look at cross-sectional studies, then people who consume more nuts tend to have lower risk of going on to develop cardiovascular disease and other morbidities too. So if you want a really tasty product, which is good for your general health, then it's a great option. And like Ali said, I think if somebody is stable in ketosis, then they should be able to consume any of the long-range fuel products. I think the highest carbohydrate product probably is something like 15% carbohydrate, but it's also high in fiber, high in fat, and has a moderate amount of protein in it. And then at the other end of the spectrum, the coconut and almond products is something like 65% fat and 8% carbohydrate. So they're all good options mm. if you live a low carbohydrate lifestyle. In previous episodes, we've interviewed a few other um, manufacturers um, so producers manufacturers and that sort of thing so tell us about um, the supply chain so in your R&D in your development of long-range fuel what sort of issues did you have about you know trying to source the clean ingredients for for the various products did you have any issues this is probably a question for both of us but I'll start by briefly explaining the long-range fuel development process the way that we went about that was to first consider the determinants of performance in any activities that require endurance. 
And based on that, you can consider different potentially performance enhancing and health promoting ingredients, and then narrow down the list and consider the context in which you're likely to use them. Nut butters, as I mentioned earlier, are very shelf stable, very practical, they're delicious too. So we went for that food matrix, given that it also tends to be a product that promotes long-term health. And then when we'd arrived at nut butter, we started testing some of the different performance enhancing ingredients within nut butter to see how they performed and worked with food scientists and so on. And then did some more rigorous experimentation to using the product in different contexts. So that whole process was informed by systematic literature review, obviously based on the work that I've done during my PhD and other studies. I've spent a lot of time trying to understand how to better go about that process and understand and pick apart scientific research. But then the question is, well, which ingredients are best? And if you look at something like ashwagandha, then it's important to understand that ashwagandha has specific bioactive constituents. And it's therefore important to try and standardize ashwagandha for those constituents. So in this particular case, the main active ingredients are probably with analytes. And the KSM 66 ashwagandha that we used is standardized for the percentage of withanalides that it contains. And KSM 66 ashwagandha is also the best studied form of ashwagandha. So we really put a strong emphasis on only going for the clinically proven sources of the ingredients that we select. But then for nuts and so on, that's quite different because it's not like you've got companies that are making patented nuts. So that probably is, is one for Ali instead, and I'll, I'll pass the mic over to him. Yeah, so um, one of the things I was aware of was we could go, we could go out and find nut butters yeah, anywhere. They're, they're, they're prolific. Um, but one of the things I've been worried about is, A, A the quality, um, B, sourcing. You know, where, where do we get them from? How, how much do we know about where they're coming from? Um, uh, and then see the, the impact on taste. And you know, the, the, we went through a, a process of identifying manufacturing partners. And so we, we did the usual kind of taste testing. Um, and we landed on a partner that has enabled us, basically has got fantastic taste for, um, for, for nuts. Um, and um, he has uh, proved to be exceptional at um, really making a, a great tasting product and, and and the difference that this is where kind of like um you know the science meets the artisan and you know when when we make our nut butters that go into long range fuel that starts with a selecting good quality nuts um yeah, we bring them into a facility in, in the uk um we roast them and so they're, they're, they're roasted and they go through test roast because every batch of nuts is different. Um, so the, the, humi the humidity, um, there's a whole bunch of factors that affect how that nut is going to behave when you roast it and then grind it. Um, and there's obviously differences in the nuts. So Greg talked about, you know, where's the link here? Talked about one of our products and, and the carbohydrate content. A cashew has a higher car carbohydrate content um, than, say, a pecan. Um, and so 
when we were formulating, we were trying to, we were trying to kind of work out this simultaneous equation of how do we get really good taste? How do we get the nutritional composition we want? Um, and, and also, how do we get consistency right? Um, because obviously there's a lot more fat in a, in a, in a, in a pecan than there is in, in say, an almond. Um, and so, and, and the way those, the fats in those nuts behave is different. So you'll find that if you left pecan butter or walnut butter um, to sit for a period of time, you get a higher kind of head of fat on it, you know, um, oil on the top, um, which is one of the things that was a design decision for us was, we could, we could have removed the um, the oil problem that you get from a nut butter by using stuff that the rest of the food industry use. We could have used palm oil. Uh, and, you know, why, why is Nutella so consistent? Well, yeah, we've only got we've got the same number of ingredients as Nutella, but all of ours are completely natural. It's a whole fruit product. We don't put anything in there that is. Um, not not a, not a whole food or, or not based on a, on a whole food um and so we got that equation right um we did a number of trials um the, the nuts get ground in these big um stone-based grinders um and that's where we mix everything together um and we went through quite a few rounds of, of taste testing but also fun functional testing uh, a big chunk of what we continue to do is find the best way to deliver the product so we've obviously got pouches that you know when we adapted some uh we took off the shelf products to start off with and then we adapted them um, we'll probably continue to adapt them um again linked to the sustainability thing we're very very focused on making sure that whatever we produce um certainly that the, the packaging materials are as sustainable as possible so we've currently recently tied up with TerraCycle so that we can uh, recycle the pouches, glass jars, and all of our packaging, kind of paper packaging is recyclable at the curbside. Um, you bring all that together, and that's how we went about bringing, mm, you know, bringing, bringing the product to market. Very sustainable. Can I just yeah. have, sorry, can I just, can I just have one, one thing in here? And that is that we, we recognize that we're not perfect in terms of our environmental impact. And we're trying to get better over time. We're always trying to get better. And we do give a fixed proportion of our sales to a charity that works with governments and communities in tropical countries to protect their rainforests and thereby support biodiversity and mitigate climate change too. So while some of our nuts might come from places like America and obviously in terms of supply chain, that's not ideal. We, we are trying to at least offset that along the way. Mm. And that's really about those food miles. So, you know, where does, where does my food miles come into and all that sort of thing? And obviously that's an offset. But with anything like that, you know, in that product engineering sort of phase, you know, it, there is a cost. There's a cost to the product. There's obviously in that sort of R&D um, that goes into it. But the most important question is where can we get long-range fuel <laughs> you can get long-range fuel at www.resilientnutrition.com um, which is the website uh, you can also get to us on instagram uh, at resilient nuts same on twitter at resilient nuts and the same on facebook at resilient nuts um, 
Uh, resilient is spelled R-E-S-I-L-I-E-N-T, not A-N-T. Um, I think we have got that. We have bought the domain that's resilient and nutrition.com, but you'll end up in the right place. Um, but I know some people sometimes uh, get those two mixed up. Um, yeah, that's the best place uh, to get. We, you can also find us on Amazon, um, but uh, we'd prefer it if you came to us. We'll, we'll package it nicely and we'll put a little note in there as well. And is it just in the UK um, or are, are you a global? Are you global shipping? At, at the moment, we are. Um, we can definitely do the UK. We if we we can do stuff outside the UK. If you are based in Europe, you will know some of the the hassles that are going on with Brexit and tax and and various other things. And um, we'll have a better idea of what we can do reliably into Europe um, post July. Um, but yeah, if you go to the site and put in your address, it'll tell you whether we can ship to you. Um, generally, at the moment in Europe and outside of Europe, small consignments. Um, work work um because they're generally treated as for personal consumption sorry to go into the details but it, it's been a real pain for a lot of people mm. over the last few months um mm. and we're sorry but no, it's not really our fault but we're doing our best yeah for, for our listeners we're recording in may so because this won't come out till later in the year okay so we we had your your social media so that i think you've covered all the social media sort of contact points there on your website instagram facebook and twitter and um so that's that's really good is there any other social media ways that people can contact you um have a look at youtube have a look at resilient nutrition on youtube um we're building the library out there of, of content um that's a good place to to start start the journey have a look at our Instagram TV feeds. That's another great place. Um, I would really encourage people to download the principles of resilient nutrition. So if you just go to the website, resilientnutrition.com forward slash principles, it will take you to a page there and you should be able to add your email and we'll send it to you. Um, it's a really good starting point, I think, for anyone to start thinking about really how how to eat better um and yeah st start there and if you start get if you start to feel adventurous then you can dip into our guides on ultra running and ocean rowing right so what's the future for you two <laughs> um well, we've got a you know we've got a pipeline of products that we're looking to bring out over the next um yeah, next couple of years uh they all fit within this uh notion of being whole food based um you know, formulated well, you know, PhD formulated, um, and complementing a healthy diet. So we've got some new products coming out. Um, we're really keen to tell the stories of resilient people, and that doesn't just mean people that go and do ultramarathons. You know, we're always keen to share the stories of people that have got their own their own challenge that they're, they're up against, and that yeah, that could be a health challenge. Um, so we're always keen to hear from people, tell those stories. Um, I think if anything, we we really need to really want to um, be part of this growing movement of uh, thoughtful eating and you know, thoughtful supply chain. And you know, how, how do we really think harder about what we eat, when we eat, you know, what we do about the 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 waste of of of, of eating as we have it at the moment? Yeah, I was um, looking we. We waste something like, ah, oh, now, 
Give me one second. It's about 30-something percent of all calories, isn't it? We throw away 7 million tonnes of food a year in the UK at a cost of £13 billion. Terrible. So, yeah, we need to be... We need to think more about our food and how we how we source it and how we eat it and how we buy it. Just as an aside, if, if people are interested in reducing their food waste, then when people switch to time-restricted eating, so consuming all calories within a period of 12 hours or less each 24-hour day, they tend to waste less food. So not only might it benefit certain aspects of health, and we haven't gone into details about how it might do so, but it might also be good for the environment too. I noticed that when I went carnivore, that significantly reduced the amount of food waste. That was because I wasn't throwing out those um, dead pieces of vegetable that were in my in my crisper drawer. But I tended, yeah, my food wastage significantly uh, reduced then. I know Jackie has sleep problems, and really that first conversation that you, Greg and Ali, had together was at that biohacking event about food performance and and sleep. So what's the secret, Greg? Please reveal all. (laughs) Ah, Well, if we can schedule a podcast which is a few weeks long, then we might be able to scratch the surface of that question. (laughs) But I'll I'll provide a couple of suggestions about how people can sleep better in the light of the current COVID-19 pandemic. If you look at how people's sleep has changed in the last 18 months or so, then there seem to be a few difficulties that people are facing. So... One of these is that people are experiencing worse quality sleep. They might have lots of stress, be that financial or caring for others, or they might have lost loved ones. And those types of issues can, of course, affect people's mental health and their sleep. Another that people face is a lot of people are working from home and They're living more socially isolated lives and that influences sleep in a few different ways. One is that many of us are working from places, including our bedrooms, which is not a good thing if we want to sleep well. And another is that a lot of us are spending more and more time in front of screens. Screen time has clearly increased during the COVID-19 pandemic. And then our waking lives, of course, affect our sleep and Many of us will have experienced this when looking back at our dreams. And a lot of people are experiencing nightmares at higher frequencies than they used to. And there's this term COVID dreams that's been dubbed to describe this phenomenon. So with those general changes in mind, here are a few tips that might be helpful. First, save your bed for sex and sleep only. And the reason that I say this is that what can happen when somebody sleeps poorly is they start to spend more time in bed. And they do that hoping that they will fall asleep and thereby catch up on lost sleep. The problem is that if somebody's spending more time in bed awake, 
then they learn to associate their bed with being somewhere that they're awake. And they need to condition themselves to reassociate the bed with somewhere that they're asleep. And the way that they can do this is by saving the bed for those two activities only. So if you're currently working from your bedroom and you're lying on your bed with your laptop on your abdomen, then you might want to reconsider that particular behavior. Another important one is to be mindful about how we use our electronic devices. And there's been some intriguing research that's come out in the last couple of years showing that if, for example, you take young people who use their mobile phones for many hours each day, and you simply have them turn off their phones half an hour before bed each night, keep them off until they're awake and up and about the next morning, then not only do they fall asleep faster, but they get more total sleep their sleep is more efficient, so they spend a greater proportion of time in bed actually asleep. And those improvements in sleep manifest as improvements in next day performance. So certain aspects of cognition, including working memory, are enhanced as a result of that change in device use. So that would be helpful for many. And then I mentioned nightmares and dreams. In some ways, those changes actually reflect one positive effect of the COVID-19 pandemic on sleep, which is that a lot of people have more control over their sleep schedules because they don't have such long commutes. The commute from the bedroom to the living room doesn't take too long, fortunately. And as a result, they can sleep in longer in the mornings. And when people sleep in longer in the mornings, they're more likely to awake from a stage of sleep in which they're apt to remember their dreams in particular rapid eye movement sleep or REM sleep, which is the stage of sleep in which we do most of our dreaming, although we actually dream in all stages of sleep. So that's positive, but to address those negative dreams, there are certain things that people can do. In the case of nightmares, one of the cornerstone ways of addressing those is named imagery rehearsal therapy. And the idea is that if you've got some sort of recurring nightmare, maybe it's something from which you wake up, then what you can do is you can sit down with a pen and a piece of paper and you can write out that nightmare in as much detail as possible. And you can then rewrite the nightmare and have it end in a more positive way. So maybe it begins on the same trajectory, but then it ends in a much happier place. And if you spend a few minutes each day going over that more positive dream, then that tends to help change the course of that nightmare, which ultimately can, it can extinguish it. So that can be handy too. I think those are some helpful tips for most people. But finally, I'll just say that stress underlies the majority of sleep issues that we face. And therefore, different ways of coping with stress, which can be active or passive, always have their place in improving sleep. So with respect to active ways, we can do things such as be physically active during the day, spend time outdoors, in sunlight, in nature, see loved ones when we can, 
There are also practices such as mindfulness-based stress reduction, mindfulness meditation that can help people better regulate themselves and thereby respond to stresses in a more adaptive way. And if somebody's just starting on a mindfulness practice, then I think it makes sense to begin by making the practice as easy as possible. So that might entail one minute of meditation each morning. The idea is that you're just trying to ingrain the habit itself of turning up. And then over time, you'll probably find that there are some days in which you start with one minute and you end up doing 15 minutes just because you get in the groove. But once you've built that behavior, you, you can then start to think about how you can optimize it. But there are a couple of specific stress management practices that I think are especially handy for sleep. So one is if you're the kind of person like Ali and I who are quite busy during the day and that busyness can suppress rumination and worry, but then as bedtime approaches, some of those concerns start to bubble up to the surface, then I think making a to-do list comprising everything you need to get done the next day, maybe in the one to two hours before bed, just using a pen and a piece of paper can help you fall asleep faster and possibly improve some other aspects of sleep quality. But one particularly helpful strategy is what some people would refer to as scheduled worry time. And I typically recommend that people tack this onto the end of dinner each day, just because whenever you're trying to build a new habit, it makes sense to pair it with something that you regularly do each day. So if you regularly consume dinner each day at 7 p.m., then just stick this on the end of your dinner. And during the scheduled worry time, what you do is you sit down with a pen and a piece of paper, make two columns. In the left-hand column, you list your concern, whatever that is, how big or small, doesn't matter. And in the adjacent column, you list the smallest next thing that you can do to address that concern. And if there's nothing that you can do about it, then that's not a problem. The important bit is that you're getting those concerns out of your head. And then when you finish that exercise, which typically lasts 10 to 20 minutes, you commit to not worrying until your period of scheduled worry time the following day. So hopefully if you give one or two of those strategies a go, again, start small, then that might positively affect your sleep. They are some wonderful, wonderful tips and I have heard that about saving the bed just for, well, not just for sex, sleep, reading, but a lot of the time, you know, we're reading on our phones, but that again is adding to the, you know, the electronics. Do those glasses work, the blue blocking glasses or? First, the comment about reading. If you don't struggle with your sleep, I think it's fine to read in bed. I'd much rather that you read an actual physical book in bed than your phone or an iPad or whatever. I think some sort of playing Kindle is probably better than a laptop or a phone, but a book would be the pick of the bunch. With respect to blue blocking glasses, the data aren't very clear. And I think they do have their place. The way that I personally use them is during jet lag. And as a bonus tip, there's a website named jetlagrooster.com that people can go to and they can plug in details about where they're leaving from, where they're flying to, the times at which they're flying. And jetlagrooster.com will spit out recommendations regarding how to adjust your patterns of exposure to light and darkness 
and also how to use melatonin if it's relevant to speed the rate at which you adjust the new time zone. And during those times in which you're trying to avoid light, be in darkness, wearing blue blocking glasses can be helpful. The reason is that we have these 24 hour biological rhythms that govern all sorts of processes in our bodies, including things like the sleep-wake cycle, but also aspects of immune function, exercise performance, digestion, metabolism, and so on. And these clocks that produce these rhythms need to be reset each day. And the most important time cue in resetting these rhythms is the light-dark cycle. And specifically patterns of light exposure at the level of the eye. We've got these specialized cells named intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells, which are concentrated in the lower part of the retina. So it's light from the upper field of vision that's most important in resetting our clocks each day. And that makes sense when we consider the evolution that at night we might have had firelight, which is in the lower field of vision. So that's going to affect our clocks less than overhead light, which we would have got from the sun. Anyway, with that in mind, we've got these specialized cells in the eyes. They relay this time of day information about light exposure back to a master clock in the brain, which is a bit like the conductor in this orchestra of biological rhythms throughout our bodies. So it helps set the time of clocks in each of the cells in all of our tissues so that they engage in appropriate processes according to time of day. And Therefore, we need to spend plenty of time outdoors each day in daylight to anchor our circadian rhythm so that during the day we feel bright and we're physically active and then at night we sleep deeply. So if we're spending lots of time outdoors during the day, getting lots of light exposure, then small amounts of light at night are less likely to disturb our sleep. The issue with many of the studies on blue blocking glasses and also different devices that emit light, such as e-readers like Kindles, is that they often have people spend time prior to the exposure to the device in darkness. And that sensitizes them to the effects of light. Whereas in the real world, if we're outdoors during the day and we then use those devices, then we're not going to be so sensitive to small amounts of light at night. So I think for most people using blue blockers isn't necessary and Maybe there's a placebo effect at play, but if you live in an environment where you don't have much control over your lighting, so maybe you live with others and the rooms are all very brightly lit at night, then I think blue blockers definitely have their place. But otherwise, I would just dim the lights or turn off some lights beginning about two hours before bedtime. And that should more than do the trick. And then obviously within the bedroom itself, you want to make it as dark as possible. So that would entail removing light emitting devices from the bedside. It might entail using blackout blinds or an eye mask. And I would save the blue blocking glasses for those times when you're less able to control your light environment, but you need to reduce your exposure to the light. As well as making the room cold as well. Cold's important, quiet's important. Yeah, mm. and the ideal temperature seems to be something around 18 degrees Celsius for most adults, but there are quite big differences between mm. people in terms of their thermal preferences. I always joke that my girlfriend is a reptile and she would sleep on a radiator if she could, whereas I overheat if I just lift my hand off the table. Absolutely. Mm. We have the air conditioner set to 21 now, so 
Um, otherwise, yeah, it, it's cold. Like twenty-one is Celsius is is cold. It, it allows you yeah. to have the duvet sort of you know you can sort of snuggle under under the duvet a bit. So um, yeah, yeah. And if you, if you don't have AC, then just using a fan if you live in a hot environment can be really helpful. And it also serves the additional purpose of drowning out noises that might otherwise wake you up. So if you live in Brighton, then that might be a drunk person walking down the street. Or it might be somebody throwing a glass bottle into recycling at three in the morning. Not that that's something that I've experienced recently. Ali, I noticed you're wearing an aura ring like me. Um, how much tracking and data input do you do and, and how useful do you find it? Well, my, my background's in data and insights and analytics. And so, I, you know, as, as, you know, if Greg's the scientist, I, I'm, I'm the kind of like tech, techie guy. So I do have a preponderance to, to, to look, look at tech and data. Um, I, I think in, in general, it, it's really good to use the data. And I think you know, all of our approach is based on you know, rigorous research um, and therefore collecting data about you know, you know, baselining people um and then also looking at how interventions affect them it's really good to use devices um so yeah i've I've used the aura ring for quite a long time um my my sleep performance in particular goes up and down um not surprisingly uh related to where i am in the world i mean yeah pre-covid with a lot of travel it's quite interesting to see how that travel is impacting your performance and i've been a a user of heart rate variability as a measure of stress for a long time. Um, you know, in the old days you had to, you know, you had to put it, had to put a chest strap on and then we got to finger monitors and now we've got it on a ring. It's now become much easier. And I think from a measurement perspective, I always think about how easy is it for the user to add into their general general protocols? So I've heard about things. Yeah, you know, could we monitor through headphones? You know, through in ear headphones. Could we, you know, could we look at pulse rate? And there's there's always emerging technologies. But I'd say um, really good to measure. There's you know, heart rate is 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 really good. There's so much you can learn about what your body's doing based on heart rate. Things like you know, resting heart rate. Is, it's a really good indicator of of so many things. You know, you can you can use it as a proxy for overall fitness levels you can also also use it as a proxy for for stress hrv has got some really good uses around around stress um and and so that's one dimension to it also you know, what can you derive from that data so uh you might be measuring one variable but you can link it to other patterns i think what's interesting is when you start to see what's the activity the person's doing and what physiological effect is that having so you know what's how's someone's um uh heart rate changing potentially on the task they're doing we've seen that when you even with, yeah, in the in the world of zoom we've seen that people you know, their their heart rate elevates when they're going into a big meeting with a boss whether they're in front of the boss or whether they're on zoom you know so it's um it's a really interesting one i think yeah there's there's a growth particularly in this space around continuous glucose monitoring um I, f- I find that interesting because it's the subject I'm interested in, in understanding is how does my body react to different diets and having that data point. I know how I feel, but I don't necessarily have a data point to calibrate it to. And I think that's that's going to that in itself as a as a as a type of analysis is going to be very relevant 
to your audience. Um, the one thing I'd say though, is that once you get a sense of, once you've built in your mind that relationship between the data and how you feel, you start to become less reliant on the on the technology itself. So it's not surprising that you know, after using say HRV monitoring technology that people might just switch it off after a period of time if they have a relatively constant way of working. And I think that that's, that's seems to bear out in terms of you know, what people stick with. Um, but that's my observation. I don't know, Greg, any thoughts on, on monitoring? Yeah, I've got loads and loads and loads of thoughts on it, but I'll, I'll just be brief because you've already chimed in with a bunch of ideas. One is if you look at the behavior change literature, then certainly with respect to physical activity and nutrition, self-monitoring seems to in general be about the most potent behavior change technique that there is. So it definitely has its place. And with that in mind, if you're trying to change a behavior, then simply tracking it, which could be really crude, it could be having an Excel spreadsheet in which on one axis you have the date and then the other axis axis you have the behavior that you're trying to change you could just put an x in a cell if you've completed the behavior on the given day and look at that over time and the goal should be to never miss on two consecutive days but that said i think a lot of the types of people who will listen to podcasts such as the fabulously keto podcast will be people who are already inclined to almost obsessively monitor certain aspects of their health and performance. And I think that that can be negative. So if you look at sleep, for example, then in recent years, there's been a rise in the number of people turning up to sleep clinics who have self-diagnosed sleep problems on the base of data from various wearable devices. Maybe they're wearing a smartwatch that tells them they had 2% deep sleep the previous evening. And the average over the last week has been 4%. And they assume that that means there's something wrong with them. And on further analysis, using more objective measures, the sleep is absolutely fine. But then having that feedback from the devices can negatively affect them in certain ways. So I think being mature in how we look at data from these devices is important. Looking at long-term trends, not over-interpreting the data and recognizing that in the case of wearables such as smart rings, smart watches, these devices typically use algorithms that are based on cohorts of relatively healthy people without certain problems that could make the data less accurate is important. As an example of this, if you have insomnia, then your device might score you as being asleep, even though you're in bed wide awake, but lying still. If you have a sleep-related movement disorder, such as restless leg syndrome, then you might be kicking your legs violently during the night and you might be fast asleep, but because you're moving around, the device will score you as being awake. So recognize mm -hmm. those limitations and don't get too caught up in the numbers. But if you attend to the trend in the long term, then they can be helpful. And I think that for most people, tracking certain 
indices of health and performance is helpful. Some are much more important than others. Some of the most important ones are really crude, such as your subjective quality of life or your self-rated health. There's a questionnaire named the WHO5, which is a really good place to start. It's just the five item questionnaire that you can use every month or so and look at how that score is changing. And even though it's just the score out of zero, a score between zero and 25, it will quite strongly predict your risk of various ailments over time. And there are other questionnaires such as the SF12 and the SF36 that are helpful to that end. But then otherwise track additional things that are relevant to you. So if you're using a ketogenic diet because you're trying to lose weight, then track your body weight and track your waist circumference. But don't be someone who just looks at every stream of data that you can possibly look at, be targeted and don't get worked up about data that indicate that there might be a negative health trend because it might well be the case that there's actually nothing wrong mm. yeah they're very fallible i noticed my ring just i have huge gaps in the night great so let's finish off i know we've had loads of tips from you but if you had to sum them up what would be your three top tips ali you go first be thoughtful about what you eat remember what you eat affects how you feel and perform and think about um think about the relationship between what you eat how you sleep and if you can get those two in in balance you'll probably be performing and feeling pretty good so greg what's your three top tips it's a really difficult question (laughs) but if i were to shoot from the hip then i would say begin by considering the fact that humans have existed for the majority of time on our planet as pre-industrial people. And if we can mimic aspects of the lifestyles and the environments of those people, then we're more likely to thrive. So that means being physically active to acquire food and water. It means spending time outdoors during the daytime in nature with others it means living in strong communities it means fasting and being in darkness during the sleep period and it means having a sense of purpose in life and and knowing why you're here and what matters to you and what your values are i think another would be that a lot of us experience health problems because of chronic low-grade stress and the owner should therefore be on identifying things that each of us can do to help mitigate that stress and recognizing that those things are very individual to each of us so while a lot of people will say well you should meditate each day that's going to work fine for some people and for others it will be either impractical or it could in fact be detrimental because people respond so differently to different interventions But coming up with ways of better coping with stress can be really, really important. And then finally, I'm guessing a lot of people who listen to this podcast will be in relatively privileged positions when you consider everyone on earth. And with that in mind, I would say give back when you have the chance to recognize how privileged you are. And I don't want to sound like I'm on some sort of high horse and I'm by no means perfect in this regard 
and I'd like to be better than I am. But if you can give back effectively, then it will help others. And while you shouldn't give back with a view to helping yourself, it most likely will actually help you feel better too. So in that way, it's really a win-win. Excellent. Thank you. Ali, Greg, thank you for being with us. It's been fabulous. Indeed. Fabulously keto. <laughs> yes, that's right. So it's really been wonderful because what we get the sense that you've taken the noise out. You know, you've given us the platform, you've translated the science into something that is easily accessible. And that in itself is really your, you know, privileged position in helping helping to move forward and um, yeah, move forward the message for just health, full stop. That's great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Really enjoy it. Thanks very much. So as I'm editing this podcast, I noticed that we didn't ask Ali and Greg how you can contact them. So I will include it here. Of course, it will be in the show notes. But let me just tell you how you can do it if you're not looking at the show notes. So their website is resilientnutrition.com and on social media, they're at Resilient Nuts. And that's on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and LinkedIn is Resilient Nutrition. So hopefully you can check them out and see how they're doing. And don't forget to download their principles. Well, Jackie, I don't know about you, but there's so many takeaways that I've taken away from from this particular episode. What about you? Yes, and I there was a lot I knew about the sleep aspect. Um, so, but that was really good to get another confirmation that we're, we're aiming to do the right thing. And I think for anybody else that's listening that isn't doing these things, you do need to start bringing them into your daily routine. And, you know, Louise, you can probably see me on camera. I have here my blue blocker glasses. So if I'm working in the evening on my computer, as sometimes I have to, um, then I've definitely got my blue blocker glasses on to avoid the, you know, the light getting into my eyes. And when I go to bed at night, I sometimes will read for a little bit, but I've always got my blue blocking glasses on. So I'm really aware of all the things for the sleep hygiene. I know for me, I need to get to bed a bit earlier. It sort of takes me ages to get ready. So even though I go up before 10, it's quite often 11 or 11.30 before I turn the light out and go to sleep. But it's as you said, it's all about the sleep hygiene. And that sleep hygiene is not happening. Well, it doesn't happen when you just get into bed it's everything before that you know many hours before um before going to bed and i know i've been really quite strict about trying to stop eating at 7 30 i am known to still be working on the computer without my blue blocking glasses um you know well into you know 7 30 p.m you know sometimes later but well i'm pretty good at getting to bed you know, relatively early. So we usually stop sort of watching, you know, one show of an evening around about 9.30 and then we start our little routines. One thing I have been doing more recently while it's been Buddhist Lent 
and I was giving up social media on my phone and deleting all my apps is I'm back to doing the mindful coloring in and I don't know about you but you know the hardest decision that I have to face is which color am I going to choose you know if that's <laughs> the biggest stress is just like oh no um, but apparently the science behind this meditative like mindful activity is about your alpha waves so and it really is quite obviously getting in tune the color the repetitive nature of the coloring in and I have been going to sleep like a baby so I don't know whether it's the lack of social media and being distressed by that or it is the is the coloring in I find that that has just been so wonderfully therapeutic um certainly this last month yeah doing that. oh maybe i should get my coloring books out again mm. no it's been really good but some of the other things that ali and greg was was saying and obviously just to sort of reassure the listeners that their products are not necessarily just obviously you know for the elite elite athletes that there are applications for the the general population and we will put in the link in the show notes to the principles of resilient nutrition, their free ebook um, on the show notes for for the listeners as well. So, as well as obviously like Greg's Greg's pages as well. So, and to the to their website. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I was going to say so. Some people they said that some people are using these products just as a meal replacement, which. You know, it makes sense if they're full of nutrition. Why not? Especially if you're out and about, I think, and you wanted to carry something with you. That would be a really easy thing to put in your bag and just have on hand if you need it. Yeah, and I think some people are looking for those those instant sorts of, you know, supplementations. And knowing, and as we do with Ali and Greg, the science and the engineering that goes behind the product, we can trust that. So, and I think that that's so often where we have now exploded on the market a lot of branded products as keto or low carb, and yet they're full of, you know, one of the 50, 50 magical words for sugar, you know, hidden yeah. in there. But we can obviously trust um, Ali and Greg's products, which is very reassuring for um, people that are wanting to stay clean, not dirty, dirty, low-carb keto. So that's that's really good of them to do that. Yeah. So, Jackie, where can we get the show notes for this episode? So we can find the show notes at fabulouslyketo.com forward slash podcast forward slash 053. Great. Thanks, Jackie. It would be great if you could support us through Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash fabulously keto and you can choose the monthly amount you wish. Can you recommend a guest we can interview? If you can, click on the link in the show notes to send us your recommendation. Would you like to join our Facebook group? Search for Fabulously Keto on Facebook. Our Facebook page is called Fabulously Keto and you can follow us there. Or you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Fabulously Keto. Or follow us on Instagram, Fabulously Keto 1. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know you listened by tagging us in your Insta story or Instagram post using the handle Fabulously Keto 1 and the hashtag TFKP. 
All the links are on the website and in the show notes. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, click the subscribe button. Reviews help us to be found and reach new listeners. Please leave a review of our show on your preferred podcast listening platform. We appreciate you taking the time and read them all. Disclaimer. The information in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Nothing in this podcast can be taken as advice. Whether our guests are doctors, healthcare professionals or not, they're only sharing their own opinions and stories and this does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. It's always best to seek professional medical advice should you wish to make any changes to your current medication or treatments. Also speak to your own doctor if you have any concerns about your health or you wish to make lifestyle changes, especially if you're taking medication.